In John chapter 2, beginning with verse 12, we have something of a transition. Verse 12 goes with the previous passage regarding the wedding feast that was in Cana and the first sign that Jesus performed, but it also goes with the second incident that John describes for us that comes after, beginning in verse 13. So this verse provides us with a transition that moves from one to the other. It says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Now, verse 12 seems to be of little importance. It records a a transition, a physical transition from Cana to the lakeshore region of Capernaum. While there are some who see indicators of family connections or regional alliances in this verse, it seems more likely that John is taking the reader from a very private sign regarding the deity of Christ at the wedding supper to a much more public display of the authority of Christ at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, I remind you that John is not intending to provide you with a narrative that, that moves along from one event to the other that creates a timeline. He's simply sharing with us events and circumstances that go along with the theme of presenting the deity of Christ and the glory of God in Christ in a way that will ultimately convince or persuade those who would read this gospel that Jesus is the means by which we are saved. And so it isn't necessary that those things are connected to one another in a neat fashion. Uh, So don't get hung up on that or caught up in that kind of, of stuff. Understanding the progression of the stories is less to do with logistics and geography and a lot more to do with purpose and authority. And that's what this is revealing. Turning water to wine helped the disciples and members of the family of Jesus in a more profound way so that they believed according to what the passage says. doesn't mean that this was the first time they believed or that this was the only time. This is not talking about that kind of belief. It is talking about a progressive confidence in who Christ is and that indeed he is the Messiah. Now that authority is going to be displayed in a very powerful way. Turning water into wine helps them to believe, but clearing the temple of corruption opens the door for the restoration of authentic worship that will focus on the ultimate purpose of the Messiah who is in fact the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And so in chapter 2, beginning with verse 13, we see the cleansing of the temple. There's only two points to this sermon, so your notes will be fairly open, but there's a bunch of stuff under each one of them. So hopefully they break down by verse for you note takers, and it'll help you just follow along with the verses. First of all, we see the cleansing of the temple. Look at verses 13 through 17. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple, 
with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The cleansing of the temple provides us with a much more public display of the authority and power of Jesus as he comes into the world to demonstrate not only that he is the Son of God, but also that through him we can discover what genuine life is all about. It tells us very simply in verse 13 that Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Now, John's going to use Passover numerous times. And I said this to you, I think, already because it's mentioned in the previous passage as well. But he will use that as a backdrop to what is happening, reminding us along the way. It provides the perfect context for Jesus as the Lamb of God and for the sacrifice and the shedding of his blood for the remission of sin that delivers us from death. And so, so Passover is an important celebration in Judaism, but it is even more significant for Christianity in that Jesus fulfills everything that Passover points us toward. This is an important passage, and it's one that helps us to understand some of the details. They were at Capernaum, and it says they go up to Jerusalem. You always go up to Jerusalem. doesn't matter where you are. Jerusalem's on a, on a mountain, they call it. It's a, probably more of a hill than anything else, but it's an elevated position. And when we look in the Psalms, we find there are Psalms of Ascent. If you've ever read some of the Psalms and saw the, the headings for them, and they spoke of them as Psalms of Ascent, this is what they're talking about. These are the songs they would sing as they went up to the temple to worship. And so the Songs of Ascent were these times of celebration, these times of worship, but they did that as a preparation, as a, an expectation of what they would encounter when they came into the very presence of God. Keep in mind that the temple is important. Uh, it is important because it represents God's presence among his people. It's important because it's the place to which they would go in order to offer sacrifice for their sin, to renew and consecrate their lives before God. This was a valuable and significant experience in which every celebration and each year as it turned again to this time of Passover, they would come back to the house of the Lord to meet with him there. All of this is setting in motion a reminder for us of the, of the realities that are, being, that are in view whenever we see the worship in the temple. But those realities are always just somewhat out of reach until Jesus comes. And he is about to put them in perspective for us in a way that has never been known before. <clears throat> Jesus is the Lamb of God who delivers from sin and death, but he demonstrates his faithfulness to worship as he himself goes up to celebrate and participate in the Passover celebration. Verse 14, 
In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So when you go into the temple grounds, what you will come into first during the days of Jesus would be what is referred to as the court of the Gentiles. Court of the Gentiles is a large open space. And it is the first thing that you encounter upon entering that area. The reason it is so named is because those who are not Jews but wish to become uh, converts to Judaism from being Gentile, they are allowed in to this outer area. And so there is still this segregation that takes place. It gives us an indication of kind of the limits that existed in that day. But here's the other side of it. The whole point of God selecting a people unto himself was that those people would display his glory to the rest of the world. Thus, there would be many nations that would come from Abraham's legacy and lineage. That had not happened. In fact, even though there were some who were coming, they still remained distant and they were not brought into the full fellowship of what it means to be a child of God. Making things even worse is that when you would come, if you were seeking God and if you were a Gentile wishing to convert, now the space designated for you has been turned into a marketplace. Rather than bringing an ox or bringing a sheep or bringing pigeons or whatever it was that was to be offered as your sacrifice primarily based on your economic status, rather than driving them along the road or pulling them by a halter all the way from wherever you live to wherever you were or however long it was going to take you to get to Jerusalem, things have now been simplified and made much more convenient. You can just wait till you get there and you can buy all of those animals. They're right there in the court of the Gentiles. You walk in, you make your selection, you pay the price. Furthermore, because the Roman government was so reprehensible, it was considered unclean to them. You could not use Roman coinage to pay your temple tax. This was the other thing that, uh, that they had to do every year. So each year they would come, they would pay the temple tax. The reason the money changers was there were there was so that you could bring whatever coinage you had or currency that you were accustomed to using, and then you could exchange it for the appropriate coins that would then be used to pay the temple tax, minus, of course, a slight service fee. Don't you love service fees? I always feel like... Uh, you know, I'd feel better about it if they told me what the service was, but they never do. It's just a service fee. So you might look at that and you would think to yourself, well, the reason Jesus is so upset is because they're taking advantage. They're overpricing the animals. They're using uh, too high a percentage on the money exchange. And all of that is the reason that he's going to become so uh, outraged at what's taking place there, and he's going to, to drive them out of there. But that isn't it at all. This passage, at least, as it deals with this, isn't talking about the manner in which this commerce is taking place. It's talking about the location. It's not whether or not they're doing it ethically. It's the fact that they're doing it in the place that is supposed to be designated for the worship of God alone. That's the problem. 
Now, for us, we don't think of our worship as being limited to a place. Yes, we gather here, ironically, in the Temple Baptist Church in order to worship. However, if you think that this is the only place that you can worship or the one place that you're going to worship, you're missing the whole point of the indwelling presence of Christ. We are called to a lifetime, a lifestyle of worship. So that worship not only is something that we do when we gather together, worship is also part of who we have become in Christ. A violation of that would be to put something else in its place. What does it mean to worship God? What are we talking about when we speak of such things? We're talking about giving him the worth and value that belongs to him alone. It is elevating God above everything else and doing so at our own expense. The tax, the sacrifice, all of the things that are brought. David said, I will offer no sacrifice that costs me nothing. And it is a reminder of the sacrifice that we make in response to the great gift that God has given. If we take it away from the physical structure of the temple in Jerusalem or away from the building of the church that we often gather for, and we start to think of it in a personal and individual way, now we understand what happens when we elevate anything above faith in God. This is what he's talking about, and this is why he is so outraged at what is taking place. Uh, he, is, he is doing so because of the place that has been defiled, interfering with the worship of God. Convenience and commerce have replaced purity and prayer. To make matters worse, the market of the, is in the court of the Gentiles, so unbelievers that are coming in would assume that the God of Israel is nothing more than a prop that is used to extort money. Kent Hughes wrote in a very brief statement, the way we worship reveals what we believe about God. I found that to be enlightening. The way we worship reveals what we believe about God. In verse 15, Jesus reacts with an angry response. It says, making a whip of cords, he drove them out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Jesus reacts with what can only be described as an angry response, driving everything out of the temple that does not belong there. Nothing is, not, is said about whether the business being conducted was ethical or not. The issue is not how they were doing business, but that they were doing it in the place that should have been reserved for worship and for prayer. If we come to worship thinking only of ourselves, our own convenience, our own desires, our own wants, then how is God glorified? And even more importantly, how are we purified and sanctified? Some people get really torqued up about the concept of Jesus getting mad and just feel completely uncomfortable with it. And that's because when we get mad, we do ridiculous things that we know are wrong. 
and then we blame it. Have you ever have you ever heard someone who was really mad blame a person by saying, "You know, now look what you made me do." You ever, ever heard that? Oh, wait a minute. Have you ever said that? That's what we need the show of hands, right? <laughs> By the way, this is exactly why I'm going to give an invitation at the end of this sermon. I think I'm kidding. I'm not. We use anger so wrongly. But Jesus isn't wrong in what he's doing, nor in the way he goes about it. The anger that he displays is often referred to as righteous indignation. I, I personally think it's a lot more than that. Uh, turning a, a common collection of materials into a whip and using it to chase the animals out and the people and the money changers, turning over tables, and uh, that sounds like quite a scene to me. Is anger always bad? Well, one of the illustrations that I read kind of put it in perspective for me. Um, imagine, if you will, and I'll just use uh, Kathy and me as an example. Uh, you all know me, most of you at least, pretty well, and you know uh, how I feel about my wife and how I love her and how protective I am of those close to me. Imagine, if you will, the two of us walking down the street, someone, someone accosting her or attacking her, and me sitting on a bench watching and saying, you know, let's just all stay calm, don't get upset. If you love someone, are you not going to defend them? If you love someone, are you not going to come to their aid immediately? If you love someone, are you not going to even go to the point of sacrificing yourself in order to protect or provide for them? I, I think so. I think that that is so common sense that it really doesn't even require an explanation. And yet, when we use it as an illustration, what we're talking about through what Jesus is doing, isn't really about his anger. It's really about his love. His love for God. His love for the worship of God. Now, how do I know that? He's going to tell us in a minute when he says, my father's house. It's a violation of what should be held in the highest esteem. I don't know how to help us to understand what was taking place there and apply it uh, as well as I'd like to. I'd really like to be able to make application for, the, for all of us in this regard in a way that would give us an understanding. I'm not telling you that you should use the example of Jesus as a way to go out and cleanse the world of whatever unrighteousness may be there. What I'm telling you is that Jesus is teaching us a lesson by this example that helps us to understand the value that we should hold for the things of God that are so often dismissed or abused. People were coming to the temple to worship not because they wanted to meet with God, not because they wanted to encounter Him in a personal way or a profound way or to confess their sins or to repent or to renew that relationship. They were coming out of obligation 
and duty, tradition. There was no thought, no thought whatsoever for the impact that God would have on them. And as they came, what did they want? They wanted it to be made as convenient and comfortable for them as possible. I'll come worship, but it's got to meet all my needs. What do you mean by that? Do you mean it's got to include truth that comes only from the word of God? Do you mean it's got to be bathed in the guidance and leadership of the Holy Spirit? Do you mean it has to be true so that the word that is delivered is going to continue to not only impact my life, but make me more and more like Jesus? Do you mean it's going to call me to a place of repentance and confession of sin, and it's going to bring me to an experience with Christ that separates me from the darkness of the world that I live with every single day? Is that what you mean? Or do you mean that it's going to measure up to whatever standard that you've already determined an expectation that meets your need? And then if it doesn't, if it doesn't, Then what? That was exactly the scene that was going on here. The problem wasn't just the bad attitudes toward worship. The problem was the missing love for God. Had they loved God and loved the worship of God, they would never have even considered allowing the marketplace mentality to take over their, their place of worship. Verse 16 uh, says that he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. You'll notice right away that he doesn't say our father's house. He says my father's house. It represented the one place in the world where the person could come into the sanctified presence of God. It was not just simply a house for God. It was, in fact, the house of God. Jesus personalizes it with this statement, my father's house. Everything represented in the temple finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. He is the way that we come to God. It is through him we enter into the presence of God. It is by his sacrifice we're restored to the right relationship with God. He is our temple. Verse 17, John offers a kind of a reflection. It says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume you. Psalm 69 is where this quote is taken. And it says that they later on reflected on this experience. And when they did, they connected through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, what Jesus had done with what had been prophesied in Psalm 69. But notice what it says about the Messiah. His zeal for the house of the Lord will be undaunted. His zeal for the house of the Lord will be something by which he refuses 
to compromise. Again, I said to us earlier that, that this, is, this is a building. Now, is it a, a building that is set apart and created for a very specific purpose, the, the worship of the body of Christ? It is most certainly that, but it's still, it's still just a building. And even though we put people in here, if the Spirit of God does not inhabit those people and does not <clears throat> inhabit the praise of those people, then it's just a building full of people but it doesn't make it worshipful. The only way that this becomes a worshipful place is if it is filled with worshipers who love God and want to meet God. Joined together with other worshipers in celebrating and, and serving. Where does that come from? It comes from a zeal, an enthusiasm, a devotion and dedication and energy that is directed for God. Do you have to come to church or do you want to come to church? Do you have to read your Bible or do you want to read your Bible? Do you have to serve Jesus or do you want to serve Jesus? Do you have to give your money? Do you want to give your money? Do you have to give your time or do you want to give your time? Those simple questions can do more to inform our understanding of where we are with regard to genuine zeal. Jesus wasn't doing what he had to do. He was doing what he came to do. He was fulfilling the will of the Father in a way that others may not have recognized. And yet now, as we stand with the disciples looking back, we can see that he is indeed the fulfillment of what was prophesied. So not only does Jesus cleanse the temple, but he also provides us clarity through the resurrection. So the second thing comes in the follow-up in verses 18 through 22, also connected to this event. In verse 18, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? This is a really interesting exchange that takes place. The Jewish leaders don't arrest him, which... Anyone else who had done what he did, I'm sure that would have been their first response. So whether they know a great deal about Jesus or not, regardless of when this occurs in the timeline of his public ministry, the reality is that they recognize that there is something unique about his power and presence. They wouldn't have questioned him otherwise. They would have immediately arrested him. But look at what they ask. What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, by what authority do you do these things? And we need to see that authority displayed in a manner that is consistent with what we expect. So often we demand that God provides evidence to satisfy the terms of our own spiritual investigations. Forgetting all along that we're the ones on trial. If God passes our approval, then we can move forward. But God is never subject to our judgments. We are always subject to his. Furthermore, the, the Jews that spoke to Jesus in this occasion, this verse, wanted outward signs. In other words, they wanted Jesus to be some form of ancient magician that would perform an amaze for the entertainment of the people. 
Once again, we're back to that whole business of worship and whether or not worship exists to elevate, elevate and glorify God or whether or not it exists in order to satisfy and provide for an approved response that is consistent with what I want. Such reversal doesn't lead to genuine worship. In fact, it leads to a corruption of it. And it results in God existing to serve the whims of man rather than man, the created one, living for the glory of God. Verse 18 is very telling. And it shows us not only where they were, but it speaks to our culture still today. Verse 19 says, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. If you want a sign, I'll give you one. Destroy this temple, he says. He didn't point at the building. He didn't say anything else. He just said, destroy this temple. You go first. Three days later, I'll raise it up. They didn't know what to make of that. In fact, they, they offered very little response that shows that they don't even connect. The Jews said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it up in three days. They're completely missing the sign. They're missing the whole point of what's taking place here. Standing in front of them is the Messiah that they all claim that they have waited for and longed for, that they have prayed for and sought after. Standing before them is the one who can deliver them from the greatest threat that they have ever faced. And it is not the Roman Empire. It is their own sinful, dark hearts. And they miss it. How many times has Jesus called us, stood right in front of us, spoken his truth in a way that was easy enough to understand, even demonstrated it for us, and we've completely missed it? I fear too often are those times. They didn't understand, obviously, uh, the Jews... And I guess we probably shouldn't be too hard on them. I I dare say none of us would have understood if we were in the same circumstance. But John again provides us with an appropriate explanation. In verse 21, he said he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this. And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The explanation of Jesus' words, the temple was his body that would soon be torn down at the cross and raised again three days later through the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ then becomes the ultimate sign of his authority. For if he has authority over death, then he certainly has authority over the temple. They didn't see it. They missed it. But he would continue to show it and he would continue to prepare them And they would have all that they would need as they would look back for that explanation. I have said before, and it's not original with me, there's level ground around the cross. And what I mean by that is it doesn't matter what your status or your stature, it doesn't matter 
how dark or terrible your sin. It doesn't matter how well you fit somewhere in the middle, perhaps almost unrecognizable in your faith in Christ and able to just sort of go along with whatever flow takes place. doesn't matter. We all stand at the foot of the cross in need of a Savior. Not just a good example. Not just a positive source of information. Not just one who will lead us to be better than we are now. But we need redemption. And it comes only through the blood of Christ shed for us at the cross. Anyone who can stand at the foot of the cross, realizing that they stand there, not because of the sins of others, but themselves, and do so with complete disregard for his majesty, not only are you not saved, you are in danger of never being saved. You're missing the greatest sign ever given to this world. For us to simply glibly go along with whatever trends or things are taking place around us without regard for our genuine commitment to the worship of the living God in view of what he accomplished when Jesus rose again is to trivialize the most important event in all of history, not just human history all history, for all eternity. Everything before the cross looked forward and everything since will forevermore look back remembering the victory of resurrection. When Jesus died, he died for our sins, but when he rose, he rose for our justification. What's the difference? The difference is that his death paid the penalty, the sacrifice necessary for sin. When he rose, it proved beyond any doubt that that debt was completely and utterly paid so that anyone who would believe in him for salvation is justified in doing so. And stands righteous, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done in the sight of God. They remembered. They remembered all that they had been taught. They remembered that when he was raised again, that he had said this. And what did they do? They believed the word. I don't have anything to offer you today except the word. If we refuse to believe the word, then what will you believe? You want a sign? Hmm. That does not put you in the best of company. The only sign that we need is revealed here. And his name is Jesus. He has come to restore our worship. It's not about making whips and driving out what we don't like. It's about loving God and loving His Son above all else.